Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a patient perspective on cancer treatment during the pandemic with Christina Allen and Dr. Tara Sanft. Christina is a cancer survivor, and Dr. Sanft is an associate professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Maybe we'll start with you, Christina. Tell us a little bit about your story. Sure, thanks. So I was 38 years old at the time of my diagnosis, and um, I have a diagnosis of locally advanced breast cancer. I was not experiencing any symptoms prior to my diagnosis. And like so many other people, um, I did not have a family history of breast cancer either. So the cancer was found after I felt a small lump, which I initially thought was a bug bite. Uh, It was over the summer this past July, I had been swimming and really thought not much of it. Um, until the following morning when I woke up and and it was still there and and felt almost like a little pebble under the surface. Um, and at that point, it was a bit of a freeze moment where, okay, do I do something about this? What do I do? Um, so I reached out and and was able to see my OBGYN um, within a day or two at which point she had referred me for further imaging. And that's when I became connected to Smilo. Um, I think another important thing to mention is that um, throughout my treatment and my illness, I have continued working and I am a licensed clinical social worker in healthcare and have been working in hospital systems for a little over 12 years now. So Christina, you were diagnosed. I mean, this this really happened this past July, i.e. July of 2020, right in the middle of this pandemic. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, you, you kind of mentioned, you know, this, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I can only imagine that that was even heightened with what am I going to do in the midst of COVID? Is my doctor's office open? Do I do a virtual visit? Do I go into the office? Um, How does that work? Tell us a little bit about that thought process and whether, you know, you ended up seeing your doctor using telemedicine or whether you went into their office and whether you had any challenges with that. Sure. And that's a great question. Um, Almost right from the beginning, COVID sort of felt like this parallel opponent in my um, 
in my treatment and in my illness, it was always a consideration, always a factor in the decisions that I was making and the decisions that my treatment team has been making. Um, I knew that um, getting in for a clinical breast exam was going to be the next step after I felt that lump. Um, so I was pretty specific and persistent with asking for an in-person visit with my OBGYN. Um, I really loved the the flexibility that has come out of COVID and the increased availability of telemedicine, but you know, some things just have to be done in person. Um, and I knew that I wouldn't feel comfortable at that point uh, using a telemedicine visit. So I was able to get the in-person visit. Um, and then there was a, a bit of a struggle and delay with trying to get imaging going uh, because my understanding is that a lot of imaging um, centers had decreased capacity or maybe even temporarily closed. Um so I did have to advocate for myself to get that imaging done and to be very clear that this was not routine screening, although that should not be deferred either, um, but rather that this imaging was diagnostic and those days, I mean, I can remember the seconds, minutes, hours, and days between visiting my OBGYN and getting confirmation that yes, this is cancer. That was a really, really difficult time. Yeah. So, so Tara, maybe I'll bring you in here. You know, during the pandemic, talk a little bit about how, as a healthcare provider and as a as a chief patient quality officer, uh, patient experience officer, um, things kind of shifted uh, during the pandemic. Um, what were hospitals' approaches in terms of clinic visits, in terms of imaging? Um, how, how did how did facilities shift and what ramifications do you think that had? Thanks, Anise. Uh, you know, I feel like in in recalling um, and listening to Christina's story, it brings me back. I'm also a breast cancer oncologist, so I treat patients with breast cancer and I vividly remember the process of uh, going through a national shutdown and talking to uh, many institutions on how they're handling it. And then I remember the Yale response. And and I have to say that um, with the guidance of the CDC, we did everything we could to keep our patients safe. It was very disorienting as a provider. I was in clinic, you know, um, two and a half days a week, most weeks. And then we went through a complete shutdown where we really minimized in-person visits because of the virus um, and really tried to focus on the patients who were receiving in-person uh, IV chemotherapy. And so, you know, um, patients like Christina coming through, we really... Um, stressed over what to do about patients with suspicious findings or um, uh, needing diagnostic imaging that fortunately at Yale, you know, 
I think that that never stopped. There were many routine um, imaging that was deferred, and and we're still feeling the effects of that. Um, Yale as a system, I have to say, I thought did a really wonderful job. They especially in communicating because. Um, this was the first time for any of us to go through a pandemic. And so really understanding the protocols and how things are changing every day was paramount in our response. And as, as a provider, I felt very well informed and I was able to convey those messages to my patients. So, Christina, ultimately, you know, you were able to advocate for yourself, which I think is such a strong message for patients writ large, whether there's a pandemic or no pandemic, um, but particularly during these times, to advocate for yourself to get the in-person visit with your OBGYN, to get the diagnostic imaging, and it sounds like ultimately to get the biopsy and the diagnosis. And so then what happened? After the diagnosis was confirmed, I was referred to um, a medical oncologist and a breast cancer surgeon, um, and then shortly afterwards, my radiation oncologist. So I started to have that treatment team built up around me, um, and I have an awesome treatment team, uh, Dr. Park my breast cancer surgeon, Dr. Knowlton, my radiation oncologist, and Dr. Kanowitz, my um, medical oncologist, they've all been wonderful. So it, it may sound a little strange, but once the diagnosis was confirmed, I had this team, we started putting plans in place. It was a little bit less of the unknown. Um, I'm somebody who likes to have a plan. Okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to approach this. These are the people you can contact with questions or when you need help. Um, so getting that ball rolling um, felt like a bit of a, a relief to me, honestly. Mm -hmm. And were those visits that you had with those providers in person as well? Some were and some weren't. So that's, now I'm recalling some things from earlier on. Um, I do recall that initially when I was scheduled with my breast cancer surgeon, it was set up as a telemedicine visit. And I didn't quite understand the rationale behind that and, and was sort of wondering, like, is this best to to meet her for the first time over telemedicine when she's somebody who's going to be operating on me. Um, so I actually reached out to Dr. Park directly and asked her uh, if she felt that that was the best thing to do clinically to meet for the first time over telemedicine, or if she thought it would be uh, more beneficial to come into the office in person. Um, she was extremely responsive. Uh, responsive and gracious and said, no, you know, I would prefer to see you in person. So she switched the visit from telemedicine to in person. And I really appreciated that flexibility um, and input from her because this is not my area of expertise. I don't know sometimes, is it better to see somebody um, 
in person versus telemedicine, the risks versus benefits there. So I really had to depend a lot on the team um, and let them tell me what's the better way to go. But for example, my first meeting with Dr. Knowlton, that was telemedicine. And that was more or less to establish a relationship with her and for her to hear a little bit more about my history, um, knowing that the radiation was going to be at the, the tail end of my treatment. And that made a lot of sense. And that even allowed me to, um, work almost a full day, the day of that visit and just take an hour out to go somewhere quiet and private and do the telemedicine visit and then get back to work. Yeah. So certainly, I mean, it seems like, you know, the pandemic, um, which caused this burgeoning of, of telehealth visits might actually have been a little bit more convenient for some visits, um, where, where that might have been amenable. So Tara, to you, you know, how did you kind of think about which visits should be telemedicine, which visits should be in person? And going forward, do you think that telemedicine might play an increasing role, particularly when you hear stories like Christina's where, you know, you can you can work the whole day and just take an hour off for the visit instead of, you know, having to take half a day off, find parking um, and uh, and go through the whole rigmarole for what might be the same visit. Yeah, when the pandemic first started, you know, we often didn't have a choice. Um, many of our visits were converted to telemedicine again, in the hopes that we weren't exposing patients to a contagious virus in person. So um, a lot of our new patient visits where we would normally see them in the office were done on telemedicine. In retrospect, some of that was good. Um, it was very disorienting. You know, we're, we're all learning new ways to take care of patients. And I think as time goes forward, the most important thing will be what Christina mentioned, which is like a shared decision. Are you comfortable doing this on telemedicine? Do you feel there's a good reason to be seen and examined in person? And I think providers um, are learning the value of listening to those patient preferences in order to accommodate and, um, and honor what is um, preferred and, and probably what's necessary. So patients kind of know inside it's okay to just do this one on video next time in person, or they know, I think I need an exam and, and we need to really pay attention to those preferences and honor that. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute and then come back to learn more about Christina's experience with cancer and the COVID vaccine right after this short break. Please stay tuned. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. 
You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Christina Allen and Dr. Tara Sampt. And we're talking about Christina's journey with cancer through COVID and ultimately to the COVID vaccine. So, Christina, right before the break, you were telling us how you were diagnosed right during the pandemic. And you ended up having um, some of your visits uh, virtually, some of your visits in person. Tell us a little bit more about how the decision-making went in terms of your treatment strategy. Sure. At the beginning, everything was so overwhelming for me. And I I really didn't realize just how many decisions there are to make about the treatment and about the strategy and and what the options are. Um, I did my best to educate myself. And then, of course, I have to so heavily rely on my treatment providers and really deeply trust them uh, because they are the experts at treating breast cancer. I was worried all throughout that COVID would possibly um, delay or defer parts of my treatment, um, although that did not turn out to be the case. So I was starting chemotherapy about a month after we had confirmed the cancer diagnosis. I did make a decision to receive my chemotherapy at one of the uh, outpatient clinics for Smilo in North Haven, which was extremely convenient for me, closer to my home, and also um, much easier to park Uh, to get in and out of, and also just less congestion and traffic than uh, Smilo proper. So it was really, really great to have that option to um, use the North Haven location for my chemotherapy visits. Um, And I felt very safe there the entire time. Yeah. So on that, Tara, did you find that um, in your management of breast cancer patients that that you may have um, switched therapies or the sequencing of therapies or the location of therapies given considerations of the pandemic? Yes, we did all of those things. So uh, fortunately, we have a robust cancer network here with locations all over the state. And um, just as Christina got her care in North Haven, I frequently um, recommended my patients be treated close to home rather than coming down to the main hospital um, for some period of time. And even um, during that time, some listeners may remember that we, um, the cancer care was temporarily moved outside of Smilo Cancer Hospital for some time. And so I even practiced um, at a location in Guilford for a while, while we were again minimizing people coming into the hospital. Um, 
We also made modifications um, to the timing of some therapies, and that was consensus driven. So we really spent some time um, listening to um, our leaders and colleagues across the nation and and. I remember logging into many webinars where um, there were conversations about how to best care for patients without compromising their curative treatments, but minimizing um, their risk of exposure. And I think that um, we, we made the best decisions we could make at the time, and it, and it was collective. Oncology tends to work really well together um, for the good of the patients, and I, I felt that coming through during the pandemic. Yeah. And so, Christina, you ended up getting your chemotherapy first. Um, and then then what happened? How long after that did you uh, embark on surgery? I recall asking Dr. Park, how soon after chemotherapy ends can I have my surgery? And her response was, four weeks would be the minimum. And I think my surgery was like four weeks to the day that I ended <laughs> chemotherapy. Um, I was yeah. ready for the next step. So there really wasn't any disruption. The planning went pretty smoothly. Um, I was extremely fortunate that I did not experience any um, any delays in my chemotherapy, I was able to have the treatments as scheduled. Um, of, of course, there were side effects, but they didn't um, they didn't sideline me. So I finished as expected, and then uh, exactly like thirty days later, I went in for surgery. And so, what was that experience like? I mean, you you come into surgery. Um, were you able to bring your family? Did you have to wear a mask? Were there other things that happened that, um, you know, when you talked about COVID being like this parallel line with your your cancer? Tell us how that that kind of influenced the surgical management. Sure. So. Masks, of course. Um, I mean, at at that point, they were so commonplace and familiar that you know, it's just what what we do. Um, right. What was a little trickier was figuring out, okay, who can be with me? Can my husband be with me? If he can, can he stay? What does he need to do? What do I bring to the hospital with me if he can't stay? Um, so there was a, that was a, a little trickier. Um, and even right up to the day that I was being admitted for surgery, it still wasn't clear like which portions he was going to be able to be there for and how long he might be able to stay for. So I think you get more comfortable sort of living in gray areas and with the unknown when you have cancer. So that was just another something that we sort of had to roll with. So it was like, I pack, this is the bag I'm going to take. If you can't come with me, if you can come with me, I have this bigger bag that you're going to take in with you. And then there will be another backup plan if, if needed. So just trying to be flexible. Um, but he was able to stay with me like right up until, um, I went over 
to the operating room. Great. And, and so, Tara, you know, we when we talk about cancer so often, you know, we talk about having a support system and how important family is. And, you know, clearly the pandemic kind of threw a wrench into um, familial support where, you know, patients often will have their entire families with them at clinic visits or or in the hospital room or uh, in the waiting area for their surgeries and so on. Tell us about how that that changed um, with the pandemic and what adjustments, if any, were made to compensate for that. Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. I think this is one of the most painful changes that came with the pandemic. Um, because of the risks, the the decision was made to limit or restrict visitors. And as you mentioned, especially in cancer care, those visitors, those loved ones are so important to every step of the way. Um, and, and, I've, and I think that that decision was very difficult. It was painful for everyone involved, especially the patients and their loved ones. You know, um, many efforts were made to try to improve the communication. Uh, once a patient was hospitalized, for instance, uh, we, we did a lot to try to ensure communication with the family member through all different types of media, including FaceTiming on rounds, um, you know, lending iPads to each room. Uh, and then um, we even had a system where there were volunteers who called with updates every day. Uh, I'm not sure that um, we did that for every patient. I know there were many patients who felt that the communication could have been better. And, and I think that um, we, you know, we need to look at our processes and, and going forward, figure out all the different ways that patients prefer to be communicated with and then try to do everything we can to spend that time w doing that communication. Um, you know, in addition to all of this, we were avoiding rooms, go going into rooms for the risk of exposing the patient. And I know that um, that was also a very isolating experience for patients hospitalized um, during that time. So it's uh, something that, you know, in retrospect, we will analyze and understand how we can do better. And we continue every day to try to maximize the chances that patients and their loved ones feel informed and cared for and heard. And so then, Christina, you you have your surgery, um, and presumably you you get out of of hospital. Um, and then what happened? So I was doing well enough that I was able to leave the hospital that evening. And that was um, a decision that was definitely brought on by me um, and, and partially because I wasn't able to have family with me. During that time, um, I knew as long as uh, my doctor felt that it was safe for me to go, I knew that it was going to be better for my healing and recovery to be around family and, and to be back home. Um, so I went in that morning and I was home by like 8 p.m. that evening. Um, but my my team, Dr. Park, was texting me that evening, the next day, checking in on me. Um, so I still felt like I had a lot of support 
but had the luxury of being back home where I was going to get the best rest and have the most help from family. So um, everything went pretty smoothly once I got home. Yeah. Did you worry about potential COVID risk that your family could bring in um, that would affect you, particularly, you know, not even after your surgery, but even during your chemotherapy? Um, Was that concerning for you in living with your family who, you know, presumably were out in the real world, um, uh, potentially exposed to the virus um, and, and getting infected yourself? Absolutely. Yes. Um, I live with my husband and he had to make a lot of sacrifices um, and think very carefully about who he was around and where did he absolutely have to go versus maybe want to go. Um, And I really didn't see much other family, uh, especially prior to getting vaccinated myself. Um, And I also didn't bring my husband into my chemotherapy treatments, um, even at times when it was better under control and they said I could bring one person in. I was worried about what he could potentially be bringing into other people receiving treatment as well. So yeah, that was a worry. I mean, it's still a worry now, even after being vaccinated, but less so. So, so in our last minute, just tell us about, uh, you know, your decision to get vaccinated, when you got vaccinated and how that went. Sure. So uh, briefly, I was extremely fortunate that I'm working in a hospital environment. I work in an emergency room um, and my hospital did an amazing job of rolling the vac- the vaccine out to staff as soon as possible. Um, it was something I had been thinking about as soon as we started hearing about a vaccine. Um, and of course, I, I talked it over with uh, my medical oncologist before moving forward uh, with the vaccine. But knowing the potential devastating effects of COVID and, and seeing what it did, um, it, it really seemed like an easy choice and the right choice for me. Christina Allen is a cancer survivor and Dr. Tara Samft is an associate professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.